Hello and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. With the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the need to fill a seat in the near future, we decided to put together a podcast outlining how the Supreme Court justice is appointed, the role of the Supreme Court, the history and evolution of the court, types of issues discussed in the approval process, and we're going to briefly touch on election year vacancies. As always, we're not looking to share our opinions, but provide the facts. So once again, with us today is our resident history buff, Jean-Ann Zanakis. Jean-Ann, take it away. The Supreme Court is probably one of the least understood branches within the federal government. And what people have to understand is that the judicial branch interprets the laws. Think of the Supreme Court as the referee in a sporting event, on the sidelines, but they can have a significant impact on the rights of the people. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the United States. The Supreme Court was established in Article Three of the Constitution, but very little was laid by the framers. Unlike the other two branches, there was no description of what its role or powers were, or any specific requirements for the individuals that would eventually be appointed. It wasn't until the passing of the Judiciary Act of 1789 that the structure of the court was laid out. At its creation, the Supreme Court had six justices, one chief justice and five associate justices. Congress has the right to change the number of justices on the Supreme Court, and they have done that at various points in time in history. The president nominates an individual, and the Senate approves. They serve for terms that are for life, until they retire, resign, or die. The Constitution uses the phrase good behavior, A justice can be impeached and removed from office if need be. Over the years, the numbers of justices have changed. They have been as low as five and as high as 10 possible justices. The number never actually got as high as 10, although legally they could have had 10. In 1869, the number of members was put at nine, and it has remained there ever since. President Franklin Roosevelt wanted to add six more to bring the court's total to 15, but that never happened. The reason why Roosevelt wanted to do that was because he wanted to have justices appointed to the Supreme Court who would not find his New Deal programs unconstitutional. So when the number of justices on the court is considered being raised, you have to consider the motivation behind that. Is it essential? Is it necessary and proper that that be done? Or is the number of justices being increased to suit a particular political ideology? At its creation, there was no separate building for the court. Very few people actually know that. Um, The Supreme Court was housed in the Capitol building, It wasn't until Chief Justice William H. Taft, who was former president of the United States and only former president of the United States to serve on the Supreme Court, convinced Congress to authorize a separate structure. 
The current Supreme Court building was completed in 1935, where it's been housed ever since. One of the most important and influential roles of the president is that he, or she someday, can nominate an individual to the Supreme Court. A president will often choose an individual who holds the same political ideologies that they do to ensure that the policies they want put in place will be done long after their term as president has ended. The more liberal a president, the more liberal judge. And the more conservative president, the more conservative judge. This, however, isn't always a guarantee. For example, um, President Eisenhower nominated Earl Warren for Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the 1950s. Being a conservative president, he picked a conservative justice, or so he thought. Earl Warren ended up being one of the most liberal justices to serve on the bench, and President Eisenhower stated that appointing Earl Warren to the Supreme Court was one of his greatest regrets. So you have to understand the meaning behind that, that statement. A president appoints a justice with the thought that they will act a certain way on the bench. And you can see that in how a nominee is approved, the process. The president doesn't just nominate judges to the Supreme Court, and that's important to understand. The president also nominates judges to lower courts as well. This is often done at the recommendation of senators from the state where the vacancy occurs. For Supreme Court justice nominations, lists are put together of potential nominees, and each of these nominees is researched extensively. Unlike requirements to serve in the other two branches of the federal government, there is no age requirement. The youngest justice was 44, and the oldest appointed was 68. For the majority of the court's history, the Supreme Court consisted of white men. In 1967, Thurgood Marshall was the first African-American appointed to the Supreme Court. And in 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman. It would take until 2009 for the first Hispanic justice, Sonia Sotomayor, to be appointed to the court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second female Supreme Court justice, was once famously asked, how many female justices would be enough on the Supreme Court? And her answer was great. Her answer was nine, because for years there had been nine men and no one thought anything of it. Today, when a seat becomes available on the Supreme Court, Issues like gender, race, political views of the potential Supreme Court nominees are of the utmost importance. With the death of Justice Ginsburg, the Supreme Court vacancy, if filled by President Trump, which would be his third appointment, could give the court a conservative majority for a generation. The hope for any justice, regardless of who appoints them and what their own political beliefs are, is that they will be just that they will be fair and uphold the Constitution for all people. Now, it's important to understand the process. Just because a president nominates an individual to the Supreme Court doesn't automatically mean that they are on the court. Past presidents have had their nominees shut down, and they have had to nominate somebody else. So just because they say, oh, I want to nominate this person, it doesn't mean there's a green light. They get to go past go, and they get to serve on the Supreme Court. There's a process, and it's followed. Presidential nominees have been voted down, 
And the Senate in 2016 refused to hold a hearing for a nominee. There are a number of key players, and the long road to approval by the Senate begins. Again, here is checks and balances at work. The president already has extensive information about the possible candidates prior to announcing the nominee. And if you've been following the news, you see different news outlets doing various exposés on potential justices. So there are these ideas that there are front runners, but the president has not announced anybody yet. Just to jump in, but at least not as of you know this morning, September 25th of 2020, but we do expect the nomination to be coming. So once the, the nominee is declared, what kind of vetting process is there for the individual candidate? And maybe you can touch on some examples where the process stopped there or the candidate was denied as you go through some of this. Yeah. So the nominee fills out a questionnaire for the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is the first stop for the nominee. If you go to judiciary.senate.gov, there is a wealth of information. You can see the questionnaires that have been filled out by previous nominees. You can see the way the Senate Judiciary has voted. It's very interesting to see the partisanship um, in the voting process. Um, Certain members received full votes from both sides. Some, you can see if it was a conservative um, appointee, the Republicans will all be yay, the Democrats will all be nay. I mean, it's very interesting to see that. So it's a great website to go to if you are curious. So I was able to download um, a copy of the questionnaire given to the uh, the nominees. The one that I downloaded was 142 pages. So you can understand the process behind that. The types of information asked you know, personal information at first, name, address, education, employment, any and all sources of income, their estimated net worth, any prior military service, honors, awards, bar associations, uh, memberships to any organizations, copies of any published writings or speeches, lists and dates and places of any public speeches made, copies of texts or talking notes of those speeches. You know, the one I downloaded gave an example of a toast that they gave in the 90s. I mean, this is how extensive the background check is. Um, Were any of these speeches paid speaking engagements, their legal career, any clients they may have had in their history as a lawyer, um, rulings, opinions of the court, history of any recusals, why or why they didn't recuse themselves. And you have to specifically list all of the cases. The nominee will have private interviews with senators. The Judiciary Committee does a background check. The FBI does a background check. And then there are public televised hearings. The purpose is to try to know as much information as possible about this individual. Senators on both sides of the aisle will ask questions about Supreme Court cases, hot-button issues, to see how the nominee may vote on those types of cases. And if you've ever watched any of those televised public hearings, 
you will see that the nominees are very careful with how they answer. Because if they answer in a way which shows they are favoring one position over another to a particular topic, they will have to recuse themselves if a case were to come to the court. So they have a very roundabout way of answering and the senators who are posing the questions will have very inventive ways of asking the questions to try to kind of goat them into giving a direct answer. The Senate Judiciary will then vote to send it to the Senate floor for a full vote. Constitutionally, there is no minimum requirement to the length of a hearing to confirm a nominee to the Supreme Court. What we do have are precedents of the hearings of previous Supreme Court nominees. It takes a few weeks to complete a full background check. The average time for Senate approval is give or take 70, 71 days. That's like the median. Some past hearings taking less time, some taking more. Just to give you an example, um, Clarence Thomas's hearing took over 100 days, largely due to the sexual harassment allegations made by Anita Hill. The question comes down to, you know, a number of things. One, um, does the president have a majority in the Senate? In this most recent case with President Trump, he does, which then gives him a Republican majority in the Senate Judiciary Committee. If you listen to our previous podcast where we discussed the legislative branch, one of the things I talked about was where the real power lies in the legislative branch is on the various committees. And whichever political party has the majority of the seats gets the majority of the seats on those committees. And when they vote, that matters. The nominee will only need 50 votes to confirm, and Vice President Pence can make a tie-breaking vote. The second thing that they need to consider is, will Senate Republicans roll the dice on waiting until after Election Day? Could they lose the majority in the Senate? Is the current president a lame duck? For the case of President Trump, the answer is unknown until Election Day. If he loses on November 3rd, he's a lame duck, but he still has control over the Senate with potentially enough time to have a hearing and have somebody approved by the Senate and the vacancy filled on the Supreme Court. If President Trump is reelected, he has another four years as president. And whether or not Republicans maintain control of the Senate will matter to a certain degree. He has four more years. If he loses control over the Senate, it might not be an easy confirmation. You might not get your first nominee confirmed, but with four years to go, you will fill that vacancy. Um, In the case of President Obama, in 2016, when Justice Scalia died, he nominated Merrick Garland. President Obama was considered a lame duck. It was an election year, the final year of his second term as president. He did not have the majority in the Senate. 
the Republican majority in the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, effectively blockaded the appointment. No hearings were held. It was the first time in history that happened. You've had hearings maybe delayed. You've had hearings where the candidate was basically shut down and they voted no and they had to nominate somebody else. But at no time in history has there ever just not been a hearing. Waiting until after the election could be a motivating factor to get people to the polls. If Republicans maintain control over the Senate and Trump is reelected, they will have secured a conservative majority on the court. If Trump is reelected, but the Senate loses the Senate majority, he will still get a nominee through, but maybe not your first choice. Might be not an easy confirmation. If Democratic voters come out to the polls and elect Joe Biden as president, the Senate could potentially still vote to approve Trump's nominee, even though he would be a lame duck president. They will still have the majority until January 20th, when the new president would be inaugurated. There are issues to consider in leaving a vacancy on the Supreme Court. 4-4 decisions mean that whatever the lower court's opinion was, it stands. It could also lead to the Supreme Court putting off certain cases or denying to hear certain cases until the vacancy is filled. Now, why is it such a political battle when a Supreme Court vacancy opens. The Supreme Court decides moral issues of significant proportions. Things like abortion, reproductive rights, freedom of speech, same-sex marriage, health care, the role that religious beliefs can have on access to the health care of employees, for example, campaign financing like the case Citizens United, These are all issues which Democrats and Republicans typically sit on opposite sides of the fence. The Supreme Court receives anywhere from seven to 8,000 requests to hear cases. In a year, they will typically hear less than 100. So what they're choosing to hear are the most essential of all the cases. When a justice is sworn into office, they take two oaths. The first oath is basically they will support and defend the Constitution. But the second oath is a little different. And I'm going to read directly from that oath. And I got it from uh, the Supreme Court.gov. You can go there. There's a ton of information, uh, great information about all of the justices, past justices. It's a great spot to go for information. But the second oath, they solemnly swear or affirm that they will administer justice without respect to persons, and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and that they will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon them under the Constitution and laws of the United States, so help them God. And so they're basically promising to be impartial, to be fair, to be a justice for all people regardless of political ideology, race, gender, socioeconomic status. I saw an interview with Associate Justice Stephen Breyer on The Colbert Show. During their exchange, Colbert asked Stephen Breyer, how are the members of the Supreme Court able to get the job done 
even though they have different political ideologies. Breyer gave a really wonderful answer. He stated that when the nine justices are in their conference room, it's just them, it's just the nine of them, and they're discussing the case and debating with each other in the two decades at that point that he had been on the court. He had never once heard a voice raised or an insulting remark made towards another justice. The discussion is always serious and professional and never personal. One of the biggest impacts the president can have on American society is to have the opportunity to appoint an individual to the Supreme Court. Whoever that individual is must defend the Constitution, and they must impartially hear each and every case. Each new justice, I would imagine, walks into their chambers and feels maybe unequal to the task or inadequate, knowing they have very big shoes to fill and that millions of people living in the United States will be directly affected by their decisions. All right. That's a lot of great info. One of the um, one of the cool things that I heard you say was these questionnaires are available um, for both confirmed and, I guess, unconfirmed or denied justices at judiciary.senate.gov. And follow us on social media, U.S. History Repeated. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Um, our podcasts are now on just about everywhere you can get podcasts. Feel free to send us requests. Uh, for topics. We will continue with our presidential series, but we always look to fill in information based on recent events, current events, uh, which is effectively new U.S. history. For Gene Anzanakis, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and thank you for listening to U.S. History Repeated.